2006, October 12th. Today is Lecture 16, Galileo and the Telescope, which will begin in just a moment. Now, yesterday, we, we moved ahead one generation away from Copernicus, and we met two of the great astronomers of the basically the late 16th, early 17th centuries. Tycho Brahe was the Danish nobleman whose astronomical technique was so good he basically brought naked eye astronomy to its highest level of expression. He got the most accurate data possible and amassed data for 20 years on the motions of the planets and positions of stars. And it was his data on Mars which allowed his assistant and then successor, the German mathematician Johannes Kepler, to reconcile the data against I'm sorry, to analyze those data and find that, in fact, all these old ideas of uniform circular motion, of circular paths, and everything else was simply wrong. And that the actual descriptions of the planets, motions of the planets, could be stated more simply if in different forms. That the orbits are ellipses with the sun at one focus, that a line from the planet to the star sweeps out equal areas in equal times, which is a geometric description of the change in speed that doesn't need any of the epicycles and equants and all the vast machinery of Aristotle and Ptolemy. And finally, the harmonic law that the square of the period was proportional to the size of the semi-major axis of the orbit cubed. That there was actually a relationship that the planet knew what its period should be by how big the orbit was. He didn't know why that was true. But these were, to him, a sign of a deep cosmic harmony that was expressible mathematically that he had come across. It's now today we have reached, however, the limits of what the naked eye can do. Everything we've talked about in this class so far has been what you can see if you walk outside and look up just with the naked eye. If you assist it with naked eye instruments like Kiko did, you can bring it only up to the limits of the eye as an optical instrument. In order to make further progress, we need a technological leap. And for that, we need to now bring ourselves to talking about the great contemporary of Tycho and Kepler, Galileo Galilei, who was the first person to have applied the use of the telescope, a new found optical instrument to the sky. So the key idea today is to introduce Galileo Galilei, who in many ways is the very first modern astronomer. If Kepler was the first modern scientist, really Galileo is the first modern experimentalist, the first modern observer. He, made an, he was the first person to have applied the use of the telescope to looking at objects in the heavens. And this technological advance led to a number of key observations which were important to the steady but slow destruction of the old Aristotelian Ptolemaic view of the world. The most important discoveries of which we're going to be talking about today are the discoveries of the moons of Jupiter, the discovery of the phases of Venus, which told you that confirmed in a much more dramatic way that Venus orbits the sun, the craters and mountains on the moon, which got rid of an old Aristotelian idea that the moon was a perfectly smooth sphere, and the discovery of sunspots that was to establish not only that the sun was an imperfect body, but it actually rotated around its own axis. Now, all these ideas led Galileo inexorably to believe that the Copernican view of the world was correct. Unfortunately, he was going a little bit against some of the grain of the times that was still firmly rooted in the Aristotelian world, and rather famously, it brought Galileo into confrontation with the Roman Catholic Church in the year 1633, which we'll discuss towards the end of the lecture, because it actually bears on some of the development of science that is to follow the generation of Galileo. Galileo Galilei was born in the year 16, 1564 in Italy. He was a northern Italian. He lived in Tuscany. He was a contemporary of Kepler. He was a little bit younger than Kepler. 
He was a brilliant and gifted mathematician and a brilliant observer and experimenter from a very young age. He showed a tremendous skill. His father, in fact, uh, was a musician and composer. Any of you who might study Renaissance or, or uh, late Italian Renaissance music may have come across a lutenist by the name of Vincenzo Galilei. That is, in fact, the father of Galileo. He had a small amount of independent wealth, which helped him, but he was always seeking patrons. At this time, the universities were very different. There was no concept of tenure and things like that. You basically had to have a patron to give you a little bit of extra money and extra consulting work to move along. And Galileo was never wealthy enough to be perfectly self-sustaining, so he was always, throughout his life, seeking patrons among the powerful of Italy. He preferred experimentation and measurement to philosophical rhetoric. If you were a student in the universities of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, you would have learned the great canon of knowledge of Aristotle, of the scholastic philosophers. And a lot of the style of argumentation was basically exactly what you'd expect from a sort of a, imagine a debate team gone bad. You were always basically falling back and, and working on an appeal to authority. Well, of course, Aristotle in his book on the heavens says, and that was the basis of your argument. Whether or not what you're reading off that page strikes you as an absurdity, obviously Aristotle's the authority and you are but the pupil. Knowledge is received. Galileo didn't have anything to do with that. He started out from right from the get-go. He was a staunch anti-Aristotelian because his own experience of experimenting in the world showed him that a lot of the things that he was being told were correct were just not just simply nonsense, but demonstrably nonsense. For example, there was an idea of what was called impetus. It was an, an Aristotelian idea of the motion of objects that, you, that, you know, objects in motion tend to eventually come to rest. If I throw something across the room, like I take my car keys out of my pocket and I toss them, they set into motion, but they eventually come to rest with respect to the earth. Aristotle and company would have said, well, that's because in the realm of the earth, rest is the natural state, and being in motion is unnatural. So I must be imparting some unnatural property to this thing to set it in motion, and that became known as giving it a certain impetus. And so just simply using this idea of impetus, say, well, if I give impetus to a rock, it will continue to move along until that impetus runs out and then it falls to the ground. So what you get is kind of a physics that looks like a Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon. But of course, if you toss something across the room, it follows a parabolic arc. It doesn't just simply go in a straight line to go, up, oh, stop, just like the coyote, and then fall to the ground. And Galileo really didn't like the fact that he was basically being asked to believe things that were demonstrably contradictive with reality. This brought him into odds with the scholarly establishment of the time. Galileo was a brilliant man, and he didn't suffer fools gladly, but he also didn't possess in very much measure that quality known as diplomacy and tact. And he made a lot of enemies, and this was to come back to haunt him in later life. He also, as a staunch anti-Aristotelian, immediately grasped the essential elements of the Copernican system early on and understood that a lot of phenomena that could not be explained otherwise had a natural explanation in the context of a heliocentric rather than geocentric system. He was not only a contemporary of Kepler, he corresponded with Kepler throughout most of his life. And I bring this quote in line to really set the stage for what we're talking about. He says to a in a letter to Kepler in the year 1597, like you, I accepted the Copernican position several years ago and discovered from thence the cause of many natural effects which are doubtless inexplicable by the current theories, by which, of course, he means the Aristotelian Ptolemaic way of viewing the world. I have not dared until now to bring my reasons and refutations into the open. While in the year 1543, 
when Copernicus first put forward the book De Revolutionibus, it was more or less accepted, except for a few objections on scientific and even religious and cultural grounds that popped up. By the time that Galileo's writing in the year 1597, at the beginning of the 17th century, the church, which was facing a tremendous challenge to its power from the Protestant world, had begun a counter-reformation which was basically trying to root out and regain some of its power. And Galileo, living in Italy, was at the center of the Counter-Reformation. And some ideas simply became dangerous to hold, especially for, in this case, a relatively young Galileo still trying to find his way in the world, even though he knew what he thought was the evident truth of those ideas. It was actually a very difficult time for the Copernican idea because now it was seen to be in direct confrontation with scripture and other traditions. And not only that, but even if he didn't take the scriptural arguments which came to bear, it was anti-Aristotelian and therefore it was an idea which was counter to the entire academic establishment of the late 16th and early 17th centuries. A little interlude, we don't leave Italy and go up to Holland where a Dutch spectacle maker, an eyeglass maker by the name of Hans Liberhey, in the year 1608 approached the Dutch parliament with an application for a patent for a device that would allow you to see things at a great distance composed of two lenses. Well, he had a, it was called, had various names at the time. Spyglass was certainly one of them. And Mr. Liberhey, who's shown here in a, in a modern reconstruction of what he looked like from Holland, attempted to say to the parliament that this is a very useful tool for you. It's a useful military tool. It's a useful tool, for example, for watching when ships are coming in. You can identify the ship when it's still far away. Word of this discovery, or certainly of this patent application, spread very rapidly. In the year 1609, you could actually buy one of these little things, which we now call a handheld telescope, in eyeglass shops in Paris. The principle is really quite simple. You can just hold two lenses up next to each other, and if you hold them up in just the right way, lined up with your eye, you might actually see the church steeple in the distance is upside down, but greatly magnified. By the end of the year, 1609, by August of 1609, the first of these had actually reached Italy. They were kind of traveling curiosities. People would show up in town with their bag full of magic tricks and things like that. And one of the magic tricks they would pull out of the bag was this tube. When you look through, it would allow you to see distant things as if they were close. Galileo heard about one of these things. As an instrument builder, of course, his ears immediately pricked up. He traveled very to, to one place to try to get his hands on one, but he actually missed the guy by about one day. Didn't get actually to see one. But a friend of Galileo's did get a good look at it and sent Galileo an excited letter about this really cool new device, and he included this sketch. So Galileo, working from that sketch and his own knowledge of optics, which he wasn't very good, so he taught himself all the principles of optics of the day, decided to build himself his own telescope. So he learned about it in 1609. He missed the chance to see it, but he got that description from his friend, learned lens making, in fact, taught himself the art of lens making pretty much from scratch, and solved a lot of technical problems. He iterated through, came up with a number of designs, until finally, in about the year 1610, he came up with a telescope which was capable of producing very good quality images with about a magnifying power of about 20 times. That means it makes a distant object look as if it's about 20 times closer. It basically magnifies it laterally as if you're standing 20 times closer. He also solved an interesting technical problem of the spy glasses that were running around because it used two uh, lentil-shaped lenses, hence the name lens, by the way. Um, 
If you use two of those lenses, which are curved out in the normal sort of lentil shape, the image that you form in this telescope, I'll give you this modern name, is upside down. Galileo realized that if you replace the lentil-shaped lens by one that's kind of reversed, you have two concave surfaces facing each other, the image will be right side up. So you don't see the church steeple upside down, you see the church steeple in its proper orientation. He invented what we now call an inverting or Galilean telescope, Galilean refracting telescope. And it wasn't going to be very long before, of course, Galileo, who was intimately involved with astronomy, did something that surprisingly no one had done in the previous two years, or at least if they had done so, didn't tell anybody about it. He turned it on the night sky. He said, well, if it makes things look closer, what happens if I look at the moon or something else? That was to be, again, one of these times in human history when we can see the world about to change because what Galileo saw through his telescope was something quite amazing. Here are uh, Galileo's original telescopes. They're actually preserved in Italy and now in a museum for Galileo in Florence. Um, they're basically made of what now we would call a cardboard tube, a lens in front. This is one of the lenses that's long since cracked and been removed, and a second lens down at the bottom, which is the eyepiece that you look through with the eye. So you pointed the big lens up at the end at, at what you wanted to look at. You put your eye at the back end, and you would see it magnified in front of you. And there is one of Galileo's original lens, a little inset in this very fancy holder here. Well, Galileo didn't just simply look through the telescope. He was so amazed by what he saw. And as an experimentalist, as a person who really had a very scientific bent of mind, he made systematic observations of the sky, took careful notes in a notebook, and then gathered all those notes together and published them as a report on what he observed. And what he saw was, in his own words, a most beautiful and wonderful sight. And in the year 1610, he wrote a very short pamphlet called the Siderius Nuncius, which translated from Latin is the Starry Messenger, which described his initial observations through the telescope. It announced his discoveries, for example, of the craters of the moon, the moons around Jupiter, which were the biggest of the discoveries that he made. He also published a series of later observations up through about the year 1623, in particular in one particular longer work called the Assayer, which describes a lot of the data that we're going to describe here today. What I'm going to be showing now is what were his key observations and why they were so important to us come from a combination of the Siderius Nuncius of 1610 and the Assayer of 1623, Almost all of the observations described occurred between the years 1610 and 1612. It just took him a while because of other intervening things to get around to writing the assayer. The most important of the discoveries to us concerned here are the craters and mountains on the moon, the sunspots, and therefore the sun's rotation, which he was to discover, the moons of Jupiter, that Jupiter through the small telescope shows four bright moons that orbit around Jupiter. And finally, he discovered the phases of Venus, that Venus, of course, shines by reflected sunlight, and so it goes through phases like the moon, but those phases, as we'll see, reveal that Venus unquestionably goes around the sun, not around some empty center in space, as proposed by the reigning Ptolemaic system of the day. This is a, a copy of the, uh, or facsimile of a first edition of the uh, Siderius Nuncius. It's published originally in Latin, in which he has, the, as usual, the very long and florid title. Uh, it's published by Galileo Galilei from, from Florence. 
And he mentions the, stu- the discovery here, this word here, Medicea Sidera, the Medicean stars. Galileo, ever trying to seek patronage, named the four moons of Jupiter for Count Cosimo de' Medici, the most powerful man in northern Italy, and was hoping by naming these planets the Medicean stars would uh, therefore become a, a patron of the very, very pow- powerful Duke Cosimo. The Medicis were sufficiently powerful, the Pope would leave them alone. That gives you an idea of the Medici power. And in fact, it worked. Uh, Galileo was to become a lifelong friend of the Medici family. This other piece of picture here from the Sidereus Nuncius shows us one of the things that that the telescope revealed to him. Remember I said back towards the beginning of class that you can see with the naked eye about a thousand stars. Galileo turned his telescope on this combination of stars, which is the seven sisters, the Pleiades, and found it was made up of far, far more stars than could be seen with the naked eye. When he turned it on the, on the Milky Way, the bright band of light that appears in the sky, he found it break into so many stars they could not be counted. And therefore, much of the heavens was simply invisible to the, to the eye without the aid of the telescope. That was a, a stunning discovery in itself, but it doesn't concern us here. What's really going to concern us are the observations that bear on the nature of the solar system. Galileo saw that the moon was not a smooth and perfect form, as was said by the Aristotelians. He said, yes, of course, it's modeled dark and light, but the moon is a perfectly smooth sphere because the moon is above the sublunar realm. It is in the realm of spherical perfection, and therefore itself must be a perfectly spherical object, perfectly smooth and simply shines by reflected sunlight. What Galileo found, this is his sketch on the, on the left here from the Sidereus Nuncius, and of course a modern photograph of the moon on the right, is at the various phases of the moon, you could see the sunlight casting shadows on various craters. You could see the seas or maria. You could see mountains and craters. Furthermore, Galileo went one step further and used geometry and said, well, look, you know, take a look at this crater here in this photograph or, or in the sketch there. If you measure the length of the shadow, remember we've used shadow lengths in geometry to measure the heights of things. We used it to measure the circumference of the earth. You could also use the, height of it, the length of a shadow to measure the height of the stick that's casting the shadow. The phase of the moon tells you the angle of the sun. He was able to measure the depth of the crater in kilometers, or the equivalent miles of the day. So he was able to show not only that the moon had terrain relief, that it was another world just like the Earth, but he could actually make physical measurements based on his observations. In a later book, The Assayer, he found that the sun was not a perfect sphere. It was not a perfect ball of light in the sky, but in fact had dark spots upon its surface. He called them, of course, sunspots. Sunspots had actually been seen with the naked eye before. Under rare circumstances, you can actually see naked eye sunspots. It's phenomenally dangerous to look directly at the sun. You should never, ever do that, as I'll repeat over and over again. But maybe if you see the sun through a thick cloud or a thick smoke cloud, you might be able to just for a couple seconds glance at the sun, and very, very large sunspot groups are visible to the naked eye. Chinese records talk about having looked at the sun reflected in a pool of black ink and possibly descriptions which may be sunspots, but they aren't as explicit and weren't accompanied by a sketch, so we don't know. Galileo's sketch, however, leaves absolutely no doubt to what is he looking at. He didn't actually look through the telescope at the sun. He probably did it various times and may have damaged his eyes. He actually used a projection where he used a white card of paper held behind the telescope and projected an image and then could simply sketch on top of that image. Like most men of his day, he was educated in medicine and many things, including art and music. And so he was actually a very good artist, as we can see. These are all Galileo's sketches. But most surprising, in the year 1613, between dates June 9th and June 11th, these are just two of the dates of observation, the pattern of sunspots obviously rotated on the sun. 
and then he could actually measure the rotation of the sun around its own axis. So not only was an object as big as the sun imperfect, it had structure, although that structure came and went in odd ways, it rotated around its own axis. Again, an absolutely anti-Aristotelian point of view, but there it was in the sky for anyone to see. Furthermore, if a huge object like the sun is rotating, and you could estimate the distance to the sun in any kind of unit you wanted to, Ptolemaic or Copernican, then why is it not okay for the Earth to be rotating? If the sun's so big and it can rotate, why not the Earth? To this Galileo, this was absolute proof that the Aristotelian view of, of fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe was just an absurdity because it was demonstrably absurd with respect to the rest of the sky. The most spectacular discovery of the Sidereus Nuncius of 1610 was the discovery of the moons of Jupiter. The top four panels here in this picture are actually taken from Galileo's notebook, from the early published version of the Sidereus Nuncius. We also have Galileo's notebooks in the archive. They're just a little sloppier to read. Uh, I've put in, of course, in English, east and west, to give you the directions here, because in, in Latin it's not terribly interesting. And you can see on successive nights, when he went to go look at, the, at Jupiter, he saw, first of all, that Jupiter was not a point of light, it was not a star, but it resolved into a disk. You can actually see it as a bright disk of light, like the moon is a disk in our sky to the naked eye. And he first saw a couple of stars, very bright stars, sitting off on either side. But when he looked at it on the next night, those stars had moved, thought, oh, maybe that Jupiter's just moved with respect to them. But then on the third night, there were two stars in a completely different place, and a third one had appeared. And by the fourth night, there were four stars. And as he watched night after night, he saw that Jupiter was not moving relative to them, but these stars would wander back and forth using Jupiter as their center, and they moved together with respect to the background stars. A modern photograph of the planet Jupiter, shown here to the same scale as Galileo, shows that what he was seeing were the four we now call Galilean moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And as he watched them move night to night, he traced out the periods of their orbits, he estimated the sizes of their orbits. He showed that the objects were in fact moving with Jupiter as a center of motion. So here was another center of motion in the heavens, Jupiter, moving along, carrying four stars with it, in much the way that Copernicus would have said, the Earth carries the moon with it. An objection to the Copernican idea is, how does the Earth carry the moon with it around its orbit? That can't be. There's only one center of motion. That's the sun, right? According to Aristotle, there must be only one center of rest. Now there were multiple centers of motion across the solar system. An absolutely counter-Aristotelian idea, but it wasn't a theory. It was just there to look at in the sky. The Earth is not the only center of motion in the universe. Finally, in the assayer, he saw the phases of Venus. Now, this sketch down here in the lower left shows uh, the planet Saturn with what he didn't later was to find out were rings. He didn't discover the rings. That was later by Christian Huygens. The size of the disk of Jupiter, the size of the disk of Mars. All the planets appeared as disks to the telescope. But Venus did something very different. These are all superior planets. Venus went through phases. When it was a crescent phase, it was really big. As the crescent shrank, the whole planet shrank. It went down to a half phase. It was smaller still to Gibbous, smaller still. And then it was nearly full phase. It was even smaller than at any time in its orbit. And of course, I now juxtapose this with a 2002 photograph by an astronomer by the name of Chris Proctor. Beautiful series to scale of Venus going through its phases. It starts out as a really big crescent 
and ends up as a gibbous phase, but its angular size is really small, which means it's further away from the Earth at this phase, closer at the crescent phase. Why is this important? Well, one is it shows that the Venus is moving around the Sun. On the left, I've shown the Copernican view of this as perfect circles. I've drawn five, six positions of Venus with respect to the Earth. Remember, we're standing on the Earth looking at Venus. At position one, I would see this part is just a crescent. At position two, I would see sort of a half Venus. At position three, I would see a gibbous Venus. Of course, full Venus would disappear behind the Sun entirely. At position four, the gibbous Venus emerging from behind the Sun. At position five, the half of Venus on this side, and finally at position six, just before inferior conjunction, a thin crescent. But the Ptolemaic view was the reason why that Venus was always staying with the sun across the sky as it was tied to this line that went from the sun to the earth, moving around an eccentric, a, a, an epicycle, which was centered between the two more or less. So as Venus went through one, two, three, four, five, six position, it would show these phases. Because it's always between the Earth and the, and the Sun, it would always show some amount of a crescent phase. So this is the pattern of phases that the Ptolemaic system would predict if you had a telescope and could see Venus. You can't see these with the naked eye. Whereas this is the pattern of phases predicted by the Copernican system. Which one's right? There it was in the sky, a dramatic demonstration of the fact that Venus orbits the Sun, does not orbit the Earth. It does not go around this empty position in space between them as demanded by the Ptolemaic theory of the day. It had it to orbit the sun. Now, of course, you could weasel out of that and say the Tychonic system also showed it orbiting the sun, but if you're going to go part way, not, why not go all the way? Galileo's observations, as published in, in, in the um, Sidereus Nuncius, had an immediate and forceful impact. This was a, an event which literally electrified the intellectual world of Europe. Galileo became instantly famous across the entire European continent. The Sidereus Nuncius was a bestseller, and he became hailed as the greatest astronomer of the time. Kepler, his longtime friend and correspondent, was absolutely delighted, pestered Galileo endlessly to send him a telescope, because Kepler, you see, was nearsighted. He couldn't really see the stars. And so... Kepler finally got his hands on a telescope and repeated many of the observations of Galileo. So there was Kepler for the first time getting to see the heavens. Many scholars looking through the telescope or reading Galileo's accounts of his observations suddenly realized that they had to take the Copernican system much more seriously than they had before because now here was a body of observation that allowed serious physical description because it really was what was going on there. It wasn't now just a geometric exercise in how to compute positions projected on the celestial sphere. The telescope lets you see Jupiter, Venus, Mars, the moon, the sun as physical objects in physical space. And so you had to now take the Copernican idea seriously. But that didn't stop everybody. Really hardcore skeptics held on tight to the Aristotelian Ptolemaic view. Some of them, in fact, refused to look through the telescope. They thought that the telescope was lying, that it was some kind of playing a trick on the eye, or that Galileo was himself simply a fraud. And so sometimes ideas, when they don't have very much traction anymore, the only resort you have is to attack the person with the new idea rather than attacking that idea per se. It's interesting to note by the year 1610, there were no serious scholarly works 
defending or putting forward anything new about the Ptolemaic view of the solar system. The last serious work with a quasi-Ptolemaic view of the world was Tycho's work describing his Tychonic system for many years at the beginning of the, of the 17th century. There was no serious scholarly work. There was nothing new. And yet in the Copernican view of the world, every single stage we see, especially Kepler and now Galileo, it's an idea that's leading to new discoveries. And scholars are all alike. They may hold, we all hold, ideas that we really cherish in many ways. But in the end, what really matters is whether the idea is any good, if it has any traction, whether it works, whether it gives us new knowledge and lets us move forward. The Aristotelian view hadn't moved for 14 centuries. And now here was this newfangled Copernican idea, and in less than a generation, it had brought knowledge that was unimaginable before. Ideas get traction. And once ideas, good ideas, get traction all their own. But bad ideas dig in their heels. The telescope was an amazing invention, not just because of what it could see, but the fact was that it took the argument out of the hands of mathematicians. It made it so that anybody who got themselves a telescope could look at the sky and see the phenomena for themselves and could draw their own conclusions. And that's a very powerful enabler of ideas. When you take it out of Latin, when you take it out of the, out of the laboratory, if you will, and put it in the hands of someone to draw their own conclusions. Galileo, of course, went around showing people through his telescope. He was a showman. Come on. Galileo knew how to work the crowd. So here he is showing a number of churchmen. Of course, this is the power structure in Italy at the time. And a lot of people looked through it. A few people, a few cardinals as well as Aristotelian scholars, refused to look through the telescope. This caused no end of grief to Galileo. If I may give another quote from the year 1611, writing back to Kepler. My dear Kepler, what would you say of the learned here who replete with the pertinacity of the asp have steadfastly refused to cast a glance through the telescope? What shall we make of this? Shall we laugh or shall we cry? Galileo simply could not understand their attitude. Why would they refuse to look through the telescope? What were they so afraid of? Galileo had one problem here, and it reveals itself in here. One is that he is not afraid to name names or call names, pertinacity of the asp. It's not really nice when you call your friends a venomous, your enemies a venomous snake. Um, but also that he did not understand the depth of the opposition he was up against. Furthermore, one should not hold to the old legends that priests and cardinals refused to look through the telescope. Quite the contrary. There were many who actually paid quite close attention to the discovery and application of the telescope and to the ideas of Copernicus. This is a series of sketches actually from the year 1612 showing Christoph Scheiner, a Jesuit priest, with a, uh, that's a telescope in the background, ladies and gentlemen, and in fact, a telescopic observations of the sun being taken care of by Mr. Scheiner. He's actually looking at the objects on the surface of the sun. Here's a nice projection box that he has built for himself. And in fact, Scheiner wrote extensively on the sunspots. He actually decided that they were clouds or something else, maybe little fluffs of planetary material between us and the sun, but not actually on the surface of the perfect sun. He kind of stood halfway between the Aristotelian world and tried to explain away with a little, what we would now call special pleading what was going on. This led Galileo to actually write a series of letters he called the Sunspot Letters, which was attacking Shiner. And unfortunately, the language that Galileo used to attack Shiner and the Jesuits on their ideas was about as polite as the, letter, the language he used in his letter to his staunch Copernican friend, Mr. Kepler. Therefore, he was making some very powerful enemies. 
In fact, in the year 1616, these powerful enemies made their first move. In the year 1616, the church finally got around to declaring the heliocentric theory philosophically false and at best an erroneous belief, meaning that it sufficiently contradicted the scriptural account of what was going on in the Bible to probably be a damage to the faith of those who might choose to hold it. It represented contradictions. Now, at the time, the church actually knew how to deal with contradictions between the interpretation of scripture and the interpretation of the real world. This was nothing new. This goes back to the 4th century AD to St. Augustine, who basically said that if the, um, if the accounts in scripture completely contradict what is the manifest evidence of the natural world, that one has to therefore view those scriptural passages as metaphorical, or speaking in riddles, if you will, speaking in poetical language that one should not hold on to a literal view of things that makes one look ridiculous. And therefore, when what, uh, what um, um, Alec, uh, Augustine was saying in the 4th century AD, remember this is when Christianity was just getting started in the pagan world, that you did not want Christianity looking foolish. If you're trying to win people's souls, you don't want to look by saying things that are manifestly stupid. And Augustine was actually writing to his fellow Christians who were, in fact, at the time, saying some pretty manifestly stupid things. And so, buried in, that, in those letters from the 4th century was what the Catholic Church took as its guidance for how to interpret when there came into be contradictions between what the evidences of the natural world were and what it said in the Bible, how to interpret Scripture. And the chief person at the church at the time of Galileo who was charged with those very interpretations was a man by the name of Robert Bellarmine. He was Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. He was the head of the Office of the Propagation of the Faith. By the way, propaganda fidei in Latin, which gives us our word propaganda. He was actually the chief theologian of the Counter-Reformation and the most powerful man after the Pope in Rome. He called Galileo to an audience when Galileo was visiting Rome in the year 1616 and they had a face-to-face -face chat in which Bellarmine basically told him that, look, the Copernican system of heliocentric is basically very, very close to but not quite heretical. Heretical means you basically make up beliefs for yourself and you damage the faith. You should stop teaching this or defending the Copernican model in public, but he did not stop him, for example, from, say, holding it any way. Bellarmine was sending Galileo a message, back off, and he gave him a verbal. He basically was prepared, however, if Galileo was to be steadfast in his refusal to agree with Bellarmine's verbal warning, he was ready to pull out a written deposition which Galileo would then be forced to sign, which would be a direct written order to shut up. That was how far the church was willing to go in the year 1616. Galileo had enough sense to agree with Cardinal Bellarmine, and it never went beyond a verbal warning thereby was to lay the troubles. Galileo thought while he couldn't hold his views in public, he could certainly discuss them philosophically so long as at the end of that discussion he came down on the right answer, namely that the earth was of course fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe. In the year 1624, he wrote a book called A Dialogue on the Two Chief World Systems, which was an able defense of the Copernican system, but on the very last page, basically they all decide, well, but of course this is just a philosophical exercise, and of course the Earth is fixed and moving at the center of the universe. He sought permission from Pope Urban VIII to publish it, but was rebuffed. He was surprised by this rebuff because, in fact, he knew Urban VIII as a cardinal before he became the Pope and was considered to be a personal friend of his. And he thought, of course, Urban, who was a very intelligent and urbane man, would have allowed the publication. But he mistook the fact that sometimes when you take power, your attitudes change. And the Pope in Rome in the time of the 17th century had what was closest in the world to absolute power. He worked his way through the system trying to seek permission and finally managed to convince someone to sign off on it. 
In the year 1632, it finally was published in Florence. It was published not in Latin, but in Tuscan Italian. So it was actually readable in the common language of the people of most of Italy. And, of course, Galileo, as it turns out, is an eminently readable prose stylist. He's a good writer. Even in the 21st century, we can read his stuff and understand it. It's actually really good. As a consequence, it was an instant success and widely acclaimed. It was, in the words, a bestseller. In fact, it made Galileo just a little bit of money and a lot of fame. And, as we're going to see, one whole lot of trouble. Here's the cover sheet to the dialogue of Galileo Galilei, member of the Society of Lincea, Mathematico, blah, 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 published in Tuscan, dialogue on the two new world systems. Here are the dialogue. It was basically a, not a straight treatise. It was a narrative form of a discussion between three friends. A man named Simplicio, a simpleton who was to defend the Ptolemaic and Aristotelian view of the world. A man named Sagredo, which is a wise man who ably defended the Copernican system. And a man in the middle whose job it was to ask the leading questions. He was the foil. It was the common literary technique of the time. Lest Galileo left you in any doubt as to where he stood, you look at the frontispiece and look very carefully at this particular thing in the hands of Sagredo. It's a model of the Copernican solar system. In 1633, Galileo was summoned by the Roman Inquisition and a document was produced alleging that Bellarmine, who had since died in the year 1616, had specifically forbade him in writing to discuss the Copernican system in any way, shape, or form. Galileo therefore faced two charges before the Inquisition. He was accused of disobeying a direct order from the, from the Cardinal of the Church, Bellarmine, in 1616, and furthermore by getting the church censors to allow publication of the dialogue in 1632, he had misled them by making them think that it was okay for him to be discussing this and writing this book, when in fact he knew for a fact he had written orders neither to do so. We have all the documents of the Inquisition, and we even have this written order from Bellarmine. 20th century scholarship shows that it in fact is a forgery. Galileo was framed. He was framed by all those enemies he had spent his life making and who, unable to win in the court of public opinion, used their position within the church to subvert church canon law to basically use the power of the law against him. Their own ideas were not getting traction, and when all else fails, use the levers available to you, and their levers were the power of the Roman Catholic Church itself. Galileo was brought to trial before the Inquisition, the subject of science really never came up. It really was a question of doctrinal authority. The enemies of Galileo had gone one step further. The character who defended the Ptolemaic system was a man by the name of Simplicio in the dialogue of the two world systems. He was a simpleton. He made stupid, silly arguments. Unfortunately, the enemies of Galileo convinced Pope Urban VIII that in fact what Galileo had done is put into the mouth of Simplicio the very arguments he, Urban VIII, had used himself when discussing the matter in the papal gardens with Galileo. And therefore, Galileo was making a thinly veiled caricature of the Pope in the character of Simplicio, and it's not nice to call the Pope a simpleton in print. This turned Urban VIII against Galileo, and, and Urban VIII was de destined to make... an a public example of Galileo and gave his full weight to the operation of the Inquisition. So now it basically had full papal approval. 
Galileo knew he was licked. He may have had the protection of the of Duke Cosimo and the, and the Florentine court, but he knew that even that power could not protect him from the Inquisition. He was publicly humiliated, and he was basically threatened with torture, but it never got that far. Galileo knew he had no choice. And so on a morning, very cold morning, he was to go up to the church, wearing the white veil of a penitent, kneel upon the cold stone floor, and abjure his curse and detest his aforesaid errors and heresies and holding that it was the earth, sun, and not the earth, that it was center, uh, fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe. We have, in fact, his written and signed confession, if you will, to having held the heretical view that the earth is in motion. Galileo could not be placed in prison. He was too famous for that, and his protectors were too powerful. So as a consequence, he was placed under house arrest at his house in Florence, where he was to remain without being able to leave his house until the year 1642 when he died. Now, many people would say Galileo was broken by this, but he was not. His, his incarceration gave him some time to think, and what it gave him time to think about was some work he'd started as a young man before his telescopic observations on the nature of moving bodies, on how do objects move and roll and drop in various ways. And in the year 1636, he wrote a book called The Two New Sciences, describing his earlier experiments in what we now call mechanics and what we would recognize as elementary physics. It could not be published, of course. He was forbidden to write or even receive letters. So it was snuck out of Italy and published in Protestant Leiden in the year 1638. This book was to lay the foundations of classical physics. But it had to be snuck out of Italy because he was not allowed to... to uh, to publish it. This is Galileo's house in Arcetri outside of Florence and the beautiful view of the vineyards out behind his house. Galileo spent the last four years of his life in blindness. His eyes were somewhat damaged by observations of the sun and perhaps macular degeneration. We really are not sure. He died under house arrest on the 8th of January in the year 1642. He still had visitors, among them was John Milton. Perhaps when John Milton, himself blind later on, was to write Samson Agonistes, and he wrote about Eilis and Gaza at the mill with slaves. Perhaps he was thinking not only of himself, but of the blind Galileo locked in his house in Archetri. However, you can't keep good ideas down, because in December of that same year, Isaac was Newton was born in Woolsthorpe, England. 350 years after the death of Galileo, the late Pope John Paul II opened an official inquisition, inquiry into the actions of the inquisition in the year 1633, and declared 350 years after the death of Galileo that Galileo was in fact innocent of the charges of heresy and that the church had basically followed incorrect procedures in the trial of Galileo. But that was the year 1992. In the year 1995, about three years after the Pope decided, after 350 years, that Galileo just might have been right after all, a small spacecraft, robotically operated, powered by nuclear power, launched by the NASA Space Center and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, fired its engines and settled into orbit around Jupiter, where it was to remain studying the moons of Jupiter and finally crashing into the planet in the year 2003. The spacecraft's name was Galileo. Sometimes bad ideas get around because they put down the good ideas. But in the end, the truth is always out. And even though Galileo never said it, still it moves. I'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs>